open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I thought that would be a good place to start in the beginning. The series that I'm teaching is called The Future. This is an unending series, I think, or at least it's longer than the three-week series that I normally teach. Um, I'm just going to keep going until I feel like I've laid it all out there. Um, We started a couple of weeks ago, actually three weeks ago, on the future as it relates to God's view of your future, your personal future, and His process of working in our lives and bringing future to our lives. And then the next week, we focused more on overcoming the fear of the future. Future always carries with it that potential of fear, great fear. And so overcoming the fear and realizing that there's a reason that the Bible says don't worry about anything but pray about everything. And so fear is a deterrent. Fear is a tool of the enemy to uh, strap us and actually demotivate us to make us ineffective concerning the future. So we can't be afraid of the future. And then last week, I answered all of your questions, everything you need to know about the end times. I'm sure you went home totally satisfied. (laughs) Truth of the matter is, I had one goal in mind last week, and that was to simply challenge us enough to understand that some of our focus on end times things is actually a distraction. It's actually, some of it is a ploy from hell to keep us from being focused on the Great Commission, on what God is doing, on what He is producing on the earth, and what we've been called to do and be. And we get totally distracted sometimes with things that no one has really figured out. Everybody has a different interpretation of the Scripture. And it just leaves me. I've been been in this all of my life. And uh, I always come back to this that there are just some things God has not intended for you to figure out. And so don't try. He even encouraged us not to do that about seasons and times. And so don't get hung up there or, you know, totally overwhelmed by something that you can't understand or what somebody else says or teaches about it, okay? And just be wise and smart. The word is mature. Listen, I know there are books and powerful teachers, and and I'm not saying all they say is wrong. I'm just telling you, remember that that man on the other side of that television screen or behind a pulpit like me is just a man or just a woman. And they have some knowledge or insight, but not all, even though we act like we know everything, okay? So be mature about it. Love the man. Appreciate what you hear that you can back up by the Scripture but don't buy into everything that's being said. Don't just because somebody said it and they were, you know, really loud about it or somebody said something and, and uh, I heard my friends talk about it and then I saw it on TV, boy, it must be God. No, not necessarily. And listen, I, some of you know what I'm talking about. I've been around a long time and I've seen really, you know, really big statements made and people saying things and they didn't happen. And I'll add, sometimes a whole lot of money is made on something that ends up not even being that important in the long haul. 
So just be cautious, be mature about it. I'm going to tell you as a kid, as a teenager especially, but I heard it all of my life growing up, I was not, I did grow up in a Baptist church, but I had friends in the Methodist church, in the Pentecostal church, and my mother, she was in every church. And so we were everywhere, you know, it wasn't just my Baptist upbringing, but I heard the talk and the, I heard the teachings and so forth on the end times, Jesus is coming soon, was said every week somewhere in my growing up years. And so I grew up with a mentality that it, life was really short. I was probably not going to get into my 20s. I actually thought if I reach 19 years old, you know, I'll really be blessed because Jesus is coming soon. And so, you know, you kind of put off even thinking about your life. And, and that, was, that was something that was happening, especially in kids who were growing up in church. And so some of my friends later on, they got married and decided not to have children because, and I told you this last week, but we decided not to have children because everything was going to be so bad. And they've gotten older now and they regret it and they hate that they did that. The Bible says children are a blessing from the Lord. <laughs> and, and there's nowhere that says turn that spigot off. <laughs> okay, so... so uh, we have to be cautious and careful what we say even. So I'm going to say this. My goal today is to give a different picture, not, not different from the Scripture, and not even really compared to other theologies. There's just a major theology that's being left out, not being talked about. We're so distracted, we're missing the full impact of God's focus. And so I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to give you um, what is truly on the heart of God from day one when it comes to mankind. And I'm going, to, it, I'm going to show you that they all tie together. He started out saying it very, in a very narrow way. And he added to it, added to it, added to it. And that's the picture, not only that I want you and I to have, but when you're talking to other adults around children, now, this is just Craig's soapbox, because as a child, I would hear this talk, and it would scare me, and nobody was helping me with that, really. Now, my family was great. We had devotions, and I got a wonderful view of the goodness of God growing up in my household. But the people around me, and the preachers, and the, and the uh, evangelists, and it was all about this thing, and it all sounded horrible and terrible, and so I had fear in my heart, and no hope for the future. And the picture that I was left with was the definition of remnant, that there were going to be a few Christians on the planet, just a few left, and the rapture would steal them away before all the truly bad stuff comes. And that's the view I had of what God was going to do on the earth. That left me with a very mean God. And then I began to read my Bible more and more and more and more and study more and more and more and more. And I began to see a thread of what God was really doing and what he was after and what it would look like at the end. I'm going to give you that picture today. And so be careful what you say with little kids walking around. Be careful what you say. And it's not always what you say to them. It's what you're saying to other people and they're listening. 
And so let's get that picture today if we can at all see where God's heart is and what he's focused on. Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 28. The very first words out of God's mouth to mankind. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. First words. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now, I'm not really sure I have my suspicion of why God wanted the whole earth filled. Remember now, the rebellion had already happened. Lucifer was in the garden when it was perfect. Let that settle. And God had a vision that would basically overthrow the rebellion. And that overthrow involved filling the earth. There is a containment of evil. And I'm not saying the devil can't be on Mars. I will say this. If you're on Mars, then the devil has capability of being on Mars. Okay? (laughs) But the overthrow of evil and of the rebellion would happen by a strategy of God, and that strategy would be to fill the earth. So multiply. Don't listen to any uh, philosophy or political agenda that says that we should curb the population growth. It was God's idea. The population growth is God's idea. Fill the earth. And whether you believe it or not, it's not actually full. It it feels like it. Go with us to India this summer. You will feel like there are too many people on the planet. But it's not true. And so God says, fill the earth. Multiply. Be fruitful. That was to Adam and Eve. Now let's look at Genesis 9, 1. He's talking to Noah. The whole earth has been wiped out by a flood. Noah and his family are the only ones left, and here's what God says to them. Verse 1, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. I feel a mission statement coming on. I mean, it's like heaven is saying, this is what I said, and I meant it. Now that we're at this point and you're the only family, you've got to rehear, you've got to, the, the mission statement's got to be reset to you so that you get it. Mult, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Now, this, it'll be on the screen. It's also on uh, version. Go to live, and our, my message notes are right there under the future. All these scriptures are listed there, and you can read them from there. Genesis 12, 3. Abraham. So Abraham, God comes to Abraham several times. In verse 3, he says of chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we have 
a little expansion of the thought. First, it's multiply, fill the earth. And we're going to put families on the earth. And then he says to Abraham, through, I'm, through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. What does that mean? I'm not sure what God meant by families. I mean, I know what a family is, but there might be a different perspective there as far as, you know, family trees, and I, I don't know. But I know what all means. The Greek or the Hebrew of the word all means all. All. All the families of the earth will be blessed through, through you. Then look, again, he says to Abraham in Genesis 18, 18. He says, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. All the nations. He'll be a nation. He'll be a people that are my people. And then all of the peoples, all of the nations of the earth. Now let's get this straight, and this is, I can't emphasize this enough, because it's true. You can look it up for yourself. The word nation in the Bible, does not refer to just the borders of countries. Nation is tribe, language. It is a people group. It is a culture. Um, and so there are many cultures in sometimes within the context of one geographic state or nation. And so we're talking here about specific cultures. You have, you have cultures that where there are there's one language, but there are many different dialects, and you almost need an interpreter between the dialects. Those are different nations within that nation. So you have, there are many, many different nations. We're going to look at some stats in just a few minutes. But he says to him, you become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Look at Genesis chapter 22, again, to Abraham, verse 17 and 18. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, there's that word, I will multiply you, your descendants, as the stars of the heaven and as the sand in which on, is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed through your seed. Now, that's, that's Abraham. Now, let's go to Isaac, Genesis chapter 26, verse 4. You would think with Abraham, the promise was fulfilled with the birth of Isaac, but that was just the beginning. And so God doesn't stop there. He takes this, this mission description, and he passes it on, and he comes to Isaac, Genesis 26, 4. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Listen, I get the sneaky suspicion that God actually wants His people to multiply. He actually wants, not only is He going to fill the earth, but He wants His people to be a great nation, to multiply. And we know that's true in the Old Covenant. Is it true in the New? We're going to keep reading. Now, that was Isaac. Now let's go to Jacob, Genesis 35, 11. God says, also God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. Now we're all the way back to what he said to Adam and Eve. This is, the, this is and I'm just showing you, this is one mission. This is not some different 
disjointed thing that God's saying. This is all one thing. He's just unveiling more and more of it as history goes on and as more people and more time passes. He increases the understanding of what, he is, what it is that he's saying. And this really shows that because he reemphasizes the first words and says, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. And we saw earthly kings, but in the new covenant, we are called kings and priests. The kings will come from your body. A nation and a company of nations. What is that? What is a company of nations coming forth? Different groupings of God's people having an impact. Now, go to Romans. Go to the New Covenant, New Testament, Romans chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. Now, let me just warn you. This scripture is about the emphasis of this scripture concerning Abraham and the covenant that God had with him. Um, The teaching here that Paul is giving is really about grace. It's about faith. It's that my righteousness comes through faith, not through works. So that's the tone of what's being said. But I want you to see what's behind what he's saying. In other words, there's, there's something here that's true, that's consistent with the Old Testament that we miss when we read this, and I, I want you to see it. So let me read this to you, verses 16 through 18. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. To all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Did you know that I am a child of Abraham? See, now this is, this is New Testament teaching that it, the Jews were the people of God, but when Jesus came and he shed his blood, what was physical now became spiritual. And as I come into the family of God, I'm, I'm one of the children of Abraham because the seed is Christ himself. All right, you understand that it's not seeds, it's seed. The seed is Christ himself, and that I'm a part of that now. Jesus, my elder brother, the Bible says. I'm actually grafted in, the Bible says. I am a part of this family of God that goes all the way back to Abraham. And so I'm a part of the inheritance of this. And here's what he says. He says, who is the father of us all? As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who, whom he believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. And here's what he said, what was spoken to him. So shall your descendants be. Listen, what's being said behind what's being said is this. I'm one of the descendants, and the promise to Abraham is my promise too. But here's the question that we're missing. His faith was accounted to him as righteousness, but what was it that he was having faith about? Now, we know it's faith in God. We know that's true. But what promise was given just because he did have faith for the promise doesn't mean, don't, don't, don't pass the promise. The promise that he had faith toward was that he would in fact become a great nation and bless all the nations on the earth and, and, uh, 
and, and through us, every family on the earth would be blessed. That's a promise. It's part of the inheritance, who we are. We are that people. Through us, every nation on the earth will be blessed. Through us, the families of the earth will be blessed. Through us, that's who we are. Now turn to Matthew chapter 28. I read these few scriptures to you last week, but I want you to hear them in the context because Jesus came along and Jesus gave further definition and understanding. He actually lived it and did it and then passed the baton to us. Jesus, he expounded upon the mission. So Jesus gave it clarity. God could not tell us way back here what he was going to eventually do. It just would not make sense. But God gave us a piece here and a piece here and a piece here and a piece here and a piece here. And then comes Jesus and says, this is the plan of God. This is the mission of God. This is what he meant by fill the earth, multiply. This is what he meant by he'll make Abraham a great nation so that he will, and he will multiply so that he can, through him, through us, multiply and bless the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth. And here's what he said. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Fill the earth. Multiply. Now, my people, multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. I'm going to overthrow the rebellion. Fill the earth. Now, my people. Fill the earth, multiply, become a great nation, and, and impact every nation, every people group, every tribe, every tongue. Make disciples of all the people groups. That word is not just countries. Every people group, every language, every culture. He said in Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, as a witness to all the nations. Not just a spoken word sermon preach, but there will be a witness in all the nations. I'll explain that. Now the scripture I read last week from Acts 1, 7, and 8. I'm going to read it to you in a way, hopefully you will grasp this in a completely different light. Look at, let's just look at verse 8. Well, no, let's read verse 7. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, let's take the shall, since we don't use that word. We use the word will. Instead of he shall do something, he will do it. And let me read this to you. We read this like a command. We read this like God is commanding us to do something. But actually, that's not what that is. That is a promise. This is promise language. I'm going to do this. This will happen. This is what you will do. This is promise. And here's the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth, to every corner of the planet. You will be a witness to me all over the earth of which you have filled and you have become a great nation and you have 
Now, now you are, you will. My people will do this. Now, you can choose to be a part of it or not be a part of it, but this is what he's doing, and he will do it. This is a promise. My people will fill the earth. My people will go to every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every people group. My people will go to every corner of this planet, and there will be a witness of me right there. You want to know what it's going to look like in the end? Well, first, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, it says of Jesus, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and authority and all power. There will be a day when Jesus says, Father, the kingdom that has been demonstrated on the planet is now I'm giving it to you. Jesus is right now actively producing a demonstration. It's not just a preaching message. He's producing a people who live together and who love one another and who serve the world and love the world. Yes, they're being persecuted for it, but they are determined to be a demonstration, a witness. That's what the witness is. The witness is not witnessing. The witness is being a witness as we live together, work together, serve one another, and be a demonstration to the world that they can see it, reaching out to our neighbor and being open with them. And like we're the city on a hill and we're not hidden under a bushel basket, but people can see us and they want to be a part of that. Or they may reject it, but they've received the demonstration. They've, the witness has been there. And that is God's purpose and goal on the planet in every single corner before he's finished. Now look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Oh, what a beautiful chapter. So John is in a vision, and he's in the throne room, and he sees the throne, and he sees 24 elders. He sees the four living creatures. They have bowls of incense just before this verse, that are the prayers of the saints. And a scroll has been presented. It's in the right hand of the Father of God. And there's a call to open the scroll, but no one can be found that is worthy to open the scroll. It upsets John. And the angel says to him, hold on. <laughs> and then John sees a lamb as if he had been slain. And that is Christ, of course, and I don't know if he transitions in what he sees, or, but Jesus comes to the throne room, takes the scroll from God the Father, and he is worthy to open the scroll, the only one worthy. And all of heaven breaks out in worship. The angels, the 24 elders the four living creatures, and then as you read on, all of the earth joins in in worship. All of the earth. And under the earth and under the sea, and I mean everything joins in worship to God over the worthy lamb who was slain. And as they begin to sing, here's what it says. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. 
For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I don't know how many people are going to be in heaven, but I can tell you where they're coming from. I'll tell you who they represent. I'll tell you from where on this earth they have come. They've come from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Heaven will not lack even one representative or one tribe's representative. That is the vision that we need to see. It's the obvious, clear, determined purpose of God. That is where our focus needs to be. That's what he's after. That's where his heart is. We call it, we have a name for it. We call it the Great Commission. But we say it, we call it even great, this mission, commission of God. We say it's great, the Great Commission, but then we act like it's not even going to happen. We act like God said to do it, but he wasn't really going to do it. When the Bible's clear, that's exactly what he's going to do. There's going to be a mighty move. It's already started. It's already happening on the planet. Even in the Middle East where, where you see such destruction and you see people being destroyed and killed, even there, there are books coming out now of a mighty revival that's happening in the Middle East. People are coming to Christ in places that you thought impossible for people to come to Christ. Don't ever think that somebody, when the, the, the first time somebody says, I'm going to annihilate Christianity, I'm going to erase it from the planet, that is a good first indication that God is about to call something that you're not going to believe. The, that was said in China in the 1940s or 50s. It was said that we're going to eradicate Christianity from China. And today it is the fast gross, grow, fastest growing church on the planet. The government doesn't know what to do with them. They get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we can't find them. We can't find them. They're not meeting in church buildings, and there are millions, billions, I mean, millions and millions and millions. There are whole, there's one church that has a million people in it. Another church has a million people in it, and we can't find them. They have leaders. All of these leaders have spent time in prison. We can't find these people, but they're out there changing the world. Don't ever be moved or taken by somebody like ISIS. That's just a reaction of hell to a mighty move of God that's being poured out over the earth. It's happening. You need to start reading the right stuff. It's hard to find sometimes. But it's not going to be on the news channel you've been watching. It's not going to be on that news app. It's not going to be in the newspaper. It's not, that's not, it's not going to be there. But it's happening. We need to catch the vision and be a part of it. Let me give you the stats. I told you last week, group of people 30 years ago or so, all the missions organizations, churches, denominations began to work together. Billy Graham kind of put his foot down and said, you guys need to come together, come. And they had a huge conference. And he said, Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations. How are we going to do that? And he even said, I'm evangelizing, but I don't know how much discipleship's happening out there. 
So we got to decide how to do this. And they did. They shifted from just evangelizing with crusades. They shifted to church planting because that's making disciples. And that movement is so rich and powerful. But you don't see the big crowds or the coliseums full of... You don't, some of that you see, and I can name a few where that's happening. But where the real action is, is that churches are being planted all over the world in every location. And so let me give you this. They've actually determined by their definition of what a people group is, which is a culture, a language, a distinct people, they've determined that there are, this, there are these many people groups on the planet. There are 9,776 people groups. Now, that number can change, but realize we have technology availability and travel capability. We actually can go places now we couldn't go before, and there's a lot of education that has been happening in the last 30 years. And so there are 9,776 people groups, by one definition at least. That's where all these 7 billion people live on the planet. And of those people groups, that 9,000-something, of those people groups, 4,000 of them, 4,048, are unreached people groups. Now, what does that mean? Let's, um, let's define a, a, some village or people group, a language, a group of people. Let's say there are 50,000 people in this people group. And an evangelist may have come in and preached a message and left. That doesn't count. We're talking about a living witness, and that would be Christian people living together in a way that they are loving and the light of God is shining and they're reaching out to the other people. It's called, we, we, we think this thing is a church. That's what they call church. It is a church. And so there's, if there's a church in a people group that is active, alive, healthy, and growing, and they're presenting the gospel over and over, they say, all right, not all the people in this land are saved, but there is a living witness. There is a witness of Christ in this people group, so we call that reached. Not that all the people are reached, but that we have a living witness there. A light is shining. Now, what about this group over here? That's how they are determined. I'm not saying that's holy or divine. It's, it's, how, it's the definitions that they're giving. So we can know where we need to go that we haven't been yet and keep working until there is a living witness in that people group. All right, there's a um, by the way, of those 4,000 unreached people groups, this is why we're involved in India, half of them, 2,018 2, of those 4,048 people groups, 2,018 of them are in India. Now, that doesn't mean numbers of people. It's numbers of groups. That's India so, you know, uh, diverse with different languages. I've told you, I spoke to one group, and there had to be six interpreters for my one message. All right, so, so there are so many unreached people groups there. That's why we're there. Here's our mission statement as a church. Reach every person with a demonstration of Christ and his kingdom. It's not enough to be individualistic about this. We've got to demonstrate something that the church, the, the world will see and say, I want to be a part of that. There has to be something happening among us that's with one another that is, that is showing demonstration to the world. That's the, that is the strategy of heaven, and that's how we say it in our mission statement. Not just, not just 
preaching the gospel, but a living witness of it, a demonstration of it. That's the kingdom of God that's going to be presented to the Father by Christ. A demonstration of the kingdom. And so that's our mission, reach every person with a demonstration of Christ and His kingdom. In this year, I'm going to call you to something more specific. And I'll get back to that in just a minute. Let me tell you the story of the Duna people. There was a, actually I was in Charlotte, I was in Charlotte and Fayetteville this week. And when I was in Charlotte, I stayed with Sushil Gupta. You know, Bobby Gupta, who leads the mission in India that we're part of. His son, Sushil, is the national director for North America, and he lives in Charlotte. And so I was there enjoying all the, you know, all the talk about the Super Bowl, you know, while I was there. And I stayed with Sushil a couple of days, and he took me to a meeting. It's actually a class. It's called Prospectus. And by the way, um, you don't have to go to college to get a degree. You can go to this class and learn so much about what God's doing on the earth. I mean, this class will just, it's incredible. It's a 15-week course. The book is that thick, and I'm not lying. It's that thick. And he's taking the course right now. I'm going to try to take it in the fall. And so uh, he's taking the course. There, we went to the class, and there's somebody leading the class, but every week there's a new teacher that comes in, drives in, flies in. And these are people from all over the world who have missions in their background. And when I walked in the door, there was this little man in the corner of the room, kind of just sitting there, very frail. Uh, he's about, he looked to be about 80 years old, and he was wearing clothes I'm sure he bought in the 70s. And he sat there, and I thought, you know, he looks kind of old, but boy, he has a glow on his face that just, ah, it's hard to describe. I mean, I just was drawn to him. I just wanted to go over there and talk to him. He just had such a peaceful glow on his face. And later, they introduced him as the guest speaker. He worked with Wycliffe Bible translators all of his life. When he was young, just had been married not long, he and his wife were called the missions, and they decided to go to Papua New Guinea. And they went with, I think one little girl was born, but there was another little girl that was just five months old. And can you imagine doing this with a five-month-old? They went to this mountain in Papua New Guinea where there is a tribe on the top of the mountain that cannot, you can't get to them. There are no roads. And so they had sent one man up there as he had plowed through the wilderness. And when he got up there, the spirit doctor laid down on the path in front of him as if to say, you're not welcome, don't take another step. And that's what this family was going to with little children. And they went up and finally made their way to the top of the mountain somehow. And they get into this village, and the village gets really nervous about their being there. Now, there are 20,000 people on this mountain. They have a single language, and uh, it's very primitive. There's no written language, just spoken. Nobody else has ever heard this language, and they've never heard anybody else's language. There are no relationships with other peoples. They are totally remote. They live in grass huts. And so this family uh, is, has made it there, and they're trying to communicate with, no, with that total language barrier. And imagine he's going to translate the Bible into a language that's not even written. And so there they are with their little family, and things are getting tense. They're not sure they're going to be able to stay. 
And then about six days into it, a little boy of the tribe falls out of a tree. He hits a limb, a branch coming down, and it rips his back open. And I know this is graphic, but you need to hear it. So they had his, the, some of the insides were coming to the outside. And so everybody thought he's not going to make it. Well, the wife is a nurse. By the way, his name is Dennis, um, Dennis Cochran. And you can even find videos on YouTube. And so uh, Wycliffe translators. So Dennis, his wife, is a nurse. And all she has is a needle and thread, like cotton thread. And they clean out. There's dirt all in the wound. And they clean out the best they can. They just do the best they can. They don't have anything there that's medical. But they, and so they clean out the best they can. And she sews him up with cotton thread. And the boy lives. And that one act, that God intervention, where God used them to save this boy's life, of course, they became almost gods overnight and had the respect of the community. Well, so I want you to picture this. This tribe actually would walk into their grass hut. The, the way the tribe lived, they didn't have like boundaries. There were no doors really. They would just walk in and out of each other's lives. It was really strange. So they would walk into the hut without being invited, without announcing. They would just watch it, and they would stand there all day and just watch them to see what they were doing. How did they cook their meals? How did they treat each other? They just sat there and watched. And, then, um, and they couldn't communicate. In fact, finally they realized that one person was coming in over and over bringing groups, like a tour guide, to show other people what was going on inside, and they would stop and look at a certain thing and just their eyes would get this big, you know, the steel pots. They had never seen steel before. And so they continued to live their life. It took about two years or three to learn the language, two or three to develop a written language, and about three years to translate it, the Bible, as much as they could into their language. I just want you to think about that. That little family's living in a grass hut all these years without the ability really to communicate until they began to learn. And, and he went through the, 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 the minute detail of developing a language and translating the Bible. He used them as he did it. Now, this this group of people had a religion. They didn't have a name for it, but back in the 1800s, there was a huge volcano in the region, and it, it had an explosion and spewed vol. Um, actually, what happened was as the, um, as the volcano exploded and the molten rock, which was, you know, it would hit the air and it would form, and I guess because of the air, they really haven't been able to figure this out. There are these round balls, very smooth round balls of molten rock that came from this thing that are in the ground. And so they would do their garden, they would plow up, and they would find one of these, and they would take them to their hut because they believed that was something really special. And so what they would do is their whole economy was based on pigs. Now, that would go over real well in North Carolina, by the way, just so you know. But their whole economy, there's no money. It was, everything was based on pigs. And so, um, you, in fact, a man would get a wife by paying so many pigs for that wife. That, I mean, it was really ridiculous. But the, 
what they would do is they would sacrifice a pig, take the pig's blood and cover this ball with the blood of the pig, and they would get on their knees and pray for forgiveness and favor from the spirits. And so the man learns their language, writes, writes a written language, translates the Bible into their language, and he begins to explain, the God of this Bible created you, and he knows your condition. This is how it happened. And then he sent not a pig. He sent his only son to shed his blood for you and to pay the price for your sin. That's where forgiveness and favor come from, from the blood of the Son of God. They heard him out after all these years. Now, this tribe acted in group, not as individuals. So if they made decisions, it was a whole group decision. So they heard him out, and then they talked with each other and contemplated and asked him questions for two years. Two years. And finally, one day, in one swoop, the whole culture accepted Christ as their Savior. I walked out that night thinking what this meant. That was just 10 years of his life, okay? 10 or 12 years. And I walked out that night with Sushil, and I turned to him, walked into the car, and I said, what have we done with our lives? What have I done with my life? What is there of value that could even compare to what this man has done? The sacrifice that he's given. The understanding that he has of the Great Commission. He's the one I got that line from. I don't know how many will be there, but I know where they will have come from. Every tribe, every people group, every language group, every nation. Because of the revelation picture. Where have we been? What are we doing? We need to reevaluate where we are. You know, let me, that, what I share with you, they went Friday night. I'm not saying everybody needs to go down to Cornerstone Friday nights, but just let me ask you this question. What were you doing Friday night? Could you... Like, we didn't even announce this. I'm not trying to lay guilt on you. I'm just trying to help you get a picture. What is it that you would have had to sacrifice to join a group of people to go down and minister to these ladies? Now, listen. There's plenty of need in the city. I'm going to challenge you for 2016 to find a group of three or more that will actually gain a heart for doing something together and do it in a way that can be seen. Go to them and minister to them. Do it once, do it twice, do it three times, or do it weekly. doesn't matter. I'm challenging you in 2016 to grab hold of the vision that this is what we've been called to do and what we've been called to do. We've got a group of people that met yesterday that are going to India this summer. That's one thing. But there's plenty of need. Listen, there's plenty of international need right here in our own city. There are 70,000 refugees living in Buffalo. And they have not all heard the gospel. That's going to the other side of the world by just going to downtown. I'm going to close with this scripture. You are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14, 16. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Simply put, let's change the world together.